Good morning, I'm Rob Overton. Today we're going to be reading from Lamentations 3, 16 through 58. That's on page 688 in the Pew Bible. Again, it's Lamentations 3, 16 through 58. When we've concluded reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And uh, we'd love for you to have the response, thanks be to God. Lamentations 3, starting in verse 16. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, so is my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in a lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it has come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I've been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, everyone. Hey, if I haven't met yet, my name is Chris. I want to add my good morning. Glad you guys are with us. 
Let me just, uh, by way of hospitality, kind of orient you to where we are, kind of as a church and where we are in this series. Um, thanks, Janet, for just for your introduction. I'm excited to spend a little bit of time kind of navigating kind of where we are as a community specifically, and we're taking a break from our series in Matthew. Let me just give you a quick idea here about like, the way your pastors think about Sundays and sermons. We prefer to go through books of the Bible just verse by verse. We feel like that's the safest way for us to lead our church because it makes us both deal with things we wouldn't normally want to name. Like, for example, last couple of weeks we've been in Matthew 8 and 9, and so we're dealing with like demons around Christmas time, which is not your normal Christmas theme. Although it was helpful to say, hey, God coming into our world is this supernatural event. So, in a subversive sort of way, talking about demons at Christmas time, let us talk about God breaking into our world and declaring war on the spirit world around us. And it actually opened up our eyes to what is real and true. But if you gave me a choice of what I want to talk about around Christmas time, it's not going to be demons and exorcisms and things like that. Now, we didn't pull off the ramp and do a series on exorcism, but it just was named for us. But as an idea, we feel like it's actually really good for us. It, it puts things that we wouldn't normally want to talk about or get to talk about or think to talk about just in front of us. So, so that's our normal. And then there's times when we just want to slow down as a community and go, hey, this is a deal we're facing either in our culture or in our world or in our church. We want to spend a little extra time. And if we wait verse by verse, it may be a long time till we get to this theme. So let's just do a, a little series on that. And so that's where we're coming to this series on hope. And there's really two things driving it. One is just the simple human idea that all of us need hope. Like we're in coming up on year three of this pandemic, but even without that, you need hope. And even if things are going amazing and you've got everything you want, you need hope because you know that's pretty fragile in any moment that could fall apart. Whatever we put our hope in apart from God actually is pretty dang fragile. So that drives us to need and long for hope or maybe even like twist it up just a little bit. So we've got like a, a regular deal with hope. And then when you come into a pandemic, I, mean, I don't know about you, but like there's a fatigue, there, there's a stress, there's a kind of nervousness even coming up as, as this new variant kind of takes off in numbers and we're going like, what is that going to mean? Is that going to be lockdowns and mass mandates and what are we going for? So if you start from that space and then just go past the data of a virus to how that's affecting families and jobs and economies and the poor and, and health and the loss that you've had and places where you've suffered because of this. And, and again, it's just made everything harder. So we just always need hope. And so as pastors, we're praying through where we are coming into this new year, facing year three of this pandemic, and just say, hey, let's just stop and talk about hope. How do you hold on to God in the middle of what seems chaotic? So that, that's value number one. The second one is the very real issue that we just changed our name as a church to Hope Community Church which we're super excited about. We're kind of fumbling a little bit as we get off the ground. So if you try to get on our website, so sorry. But like there is one, it's coming. We're going we're gonna to get there. But I thought rather than even focus on our website, if we could just as a people say, hey, what do we mean when we say we want to be Hope Community Church? We've made a ton of jokes about it. It's not a very provocative name or very trendy name, but it's not a throwaway name. It's a really intentional name. In fact, in your pastor's hearts and what we've prayed about for months as a people is to have a name that captured what was most important to us, what we wanted to like offer to people, what we wanted to, to say yes and no to, what we wanted to actually shape us as a people. And so hope is that thing that we feel like we should be proclaiming on a regular basis. 
It's what actually changes and transforms us as we get in touch with the love of God. If you're not a follower of Jesus, Jesus didn't just come to yell at you and to shame you and tell you you did a bunch of things wrong. He doesn't want to expose your brokenness and sinfulness, but he, he does that as a means to hope so that you would actually let go of the things that are killing you and harming you and, and, and just, just disintegrating your relationships and move towards something that would actually be life-giving. And so, so it's not a throwaway term, but, but I would guess if we got definitions across the room, we would all talk differently about hope. And so it's actually a pretty broad term in the scriptures. It's used over 160 times. Well, well at least if you search in English, it's used that way in the ESV. I got a D in Hebrew, so I don't know like how many times it actually shows up, but English translations, it's about 160 times. So it's a pretty broad theme. So we're going to take just four weeks and go, how do we apply hope to our past, which is this topic of shame that Janet helped us kind of get into a little bit this morning. And then we'll go, how do we apply hope just to where we are in the present when we deal with anxieties and places where we feel overwhelmed? How does the hope of Jesus make any difference tomorrow? And then let's talk about hope for the future. When, it thinks about, uh, when we think about endurance and perseverance and we think about assurance of the future, how does the hope of Jesus help us shape that? And then because we're not just keeping this inside in our own little hearts and worlds, it's helpful to talk about a hope that's worth sharing, that the world desperately needs. So, so the world needs to know what to do with their past and with their present and with their future. And so, so we're just going to take a couple of weeks to slow down and say, let's examine these themes of hope. We'll leave a ton on the table. There's a lot more that we want to live into, hopefully for decades as a church. But this should maybe get us started so that when you think about going to Hope Community Church, and you're talking to people about what that means and what your church is like, I hope what comes off your lips is it's a church that welcomes people who feel shame. It's a church that's honest about anxieties. It's a church that has hope for the future and is putting not just everything in where we are right now we can see in touch, but for what we long for in the next life. And it's a hope that we desperately want to share with those who, who need it. Whether they call themselves Christians or not, we, we all need it. So, so that's where I want us to head. And I realize our name is not just Hope Church, it's Hope Community Church, and that matters a ton to us as well. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about community because we did a whole series this fall as we launched our small groups around that, but I want to just take a second and say, like, our relationships really matter. And two years into this pandemic, coming around the lap for, for number three, like, there's an asterisk next to all of what churches are doing. Like, nothing is normal. It's pretty difficult. Lots of us have faced transitions and changes, and so when we talk about community and what we long for, there's kind of this liminal space that we're in of what we're trying to do and where we want to go and also be honest about our limitations. But the value in our church is that we think this hope is to be lived out in relationships. That you need accountability. You need someone to love you and care for you. You need someone to pray with, someone to say the scriptures with, someone you can unburden yourself with and have the grace of Jesus be, be applied in a fresh way to you. So that, that's what our small groups do. So there's a couple of them that are launching in the fall. Or they've launched in the fall. They're starting back up in January. And then I want to invite you, if you're in the room and part of our community, even if you're like one toe into our community, and you know people that are coming here or you have existing relationships, whether they come to our church or not, I think you should rally those relationships, not start brand new over fresh in the middle of this kind of chaotic situation. You should leverage and lean into those existing relationships, and we would love to help you make that purposeful. So when our small groups start, we talk about starting them from existing relationships where you already know people. And just real honestly, we would encourage you not to flush what you've already developed and built. 
like whether it's again part of our church or not. Some of you guys have long relationships. There's people that have been in our church for 60 years. Like, I, I don't want them to break up those friendships and go start brand new ones. And because small groups is not all that we do as a church, you don't have to put all your eggs in the small group basket to be known. There's our classes, and there's men's and women's gatherings, and there's ways that we serve together. We can get to know some people. So, so don't flush what you have. So we say, hey, if you have existing relationships, we should, you should double down on those. Just kind of gather together, form a group, tell us who that is so we can support you and encourage you. But, but don't start fresh over if you have existing relationships. And then there are folks who are looking to build new relationships. And so we want to offer groups for those people and to have a place where you would just classically sign up and put your name in a hat, be assigned to a group, and build some new relationships. I think that's a healthy way to do small groups as well. Where we are right now, we actually don't have any new groups to launch this winter. So we're training up leaders. We've got folks who've said they're ready in the fall. But to be really honest, we won't launch brand new small groups for people that don't have existing relationships. So that means a lot of your opportunity is twofold. One, gathering people that you already know and then just kind of raising your hand and saying, hey, can you help us get started? We would love to do that. And it is then to build some relationships throughout this winter. So, so we'll have classes. Again, there'll be men's and women's gatherings. There'll be opportunities for you to serve. And as we're doing that, you're always both doing what's in front of you and you're engaging with people, right? So we, we don't just do this thing in isolation. And in fact, some of the pain of this season is the isolation. Lots of folks here watching online who feel disconnected from, from church in general, a lot of why that's hard is because you feel alone in a lot of ways. And man, we really care about that. So you can even just flag that for us. Let us help you find some people. Let us help you be engaged. But, but that community part is really, really important for us. But we just want to give you some expectations about where we are as a church. I think that class, that's Old Testament survey, huge opportunity to meet some people. We should form a few groups out of that. That's kind of how we want to do it. So a little more sustainable, a little more organic. And organic doesn't mean disorganized and haphazard. Organic means natural, that would actually take off and grow because it's what's supposed to happen. That's the way that we think about that. If that totally confused you, are like, wait, what's the series about? Are we talking about small groups or what's going on? Like that little card that Adam mentioned to you is a great place for you just to ask some questions, put your name on that. That give box is back there in the hall. And you can just say, hey, would you tell me more about community because I'm uber confused or I totally get it and I'm ready to go. Either one of those, you can fill that card out and we would love to engage you with that. Okay, so hope, community, church. I want us to have just a sense of what it is that we're trying to do as a people. So it just made sense that we would slow down and we, and we would stop. And I think it's something that, whether we do a series on it or not, it's questions that you're asking, it's where you actually live. It should be easy to make application to your life as we talk about things like shame and regret and loss. This is where I want to focus today. So let me just pray for you. Janet's kind of already teed that up for us, and that might have been hard for you to like hear, whoa, the word shame, and be given some space just to stop and think about where you look backwards and have some sense of loss. But, but maybe if that was stirring, maybe if I just prayed over you now, Christ would meet you there because you don't have to hide those things. God already knows. He really cares. And, and I think this text will help us make some application to where you feel some loss. So let me just pray into that for us as we jump into Lamentations. So Jesus, uh, we say thank you for what you've done to give us hope, to engage our hearts, to welcome us to who you are, to, to help us see, to help us have a way of understanding our past that doesn't lead in despair a way that puts us in the present moment in ways where we don't have to feel overwhelmed, a way that gives us a secure and confident future, even though everything around us just feels really shaky and there's tons of unknowns. And, and this is something that you wanted shared with people. You actually came into our world to show us the love of God, to live out the love of God, to embody the love of God, 
And then you told your apprentices and your followers to go and share that. So, so that's what we want to do. And all of those are wonderful, and all of those are hard. All those have jagged edges. All of those we've misapplied in the past. All those we have a history with that makes us feel really uncertain. And there's places where like it's sweet to our, our lips already. So all across the gamut, would you, would you help us? Would you meet us? Would you encounter us? And specifically this morning, I'm so thankful we sang songs like we can put our life on the foundation of your love. So for those who right now, their cheeks are flush and their heart rate is up and they feel the acute body effects of shame, would you speak over them that you love them? That you sent your son actually to absorb the penalty of their shame and to set them free? That you already see them so they don't have to hide from you? I pray you would do work in people's hearts to grow them and free them and um, sustain them as it comes to the loss of our past. So, so we ask these things in Jesus' name, and we pray that you would open up the word in such a way that that is what speaks to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so with that long introduction, I hope that's helpful, though, if you're new with us. Next week as we do that vision meeting, I'll share some more about who we are as a people, but that might get us started just a little bit. So this, this journey of changing our name has been long and beautiful, and it's helped us kind of stop and go, hey, what is it that we want to be about as a people? And again, I don't know what your definition of hope would be. Let me just take a crack at it with this. I think biblically hope is a confident expectation that God will do us good based on who he is and what he's already done. There's probably some holes in that, but maybe that's a way just to get us started. It's a confident expectation. I'm looking forward, and it's not just hope and stuff of a desire for more of things. It's not something that actually is, is, is fragile. It's rooted in who God is. And I have confidence that he's going to do good, that hope is this leaning into goodness because of who God is and what he's already done. And a passage like this acknowledges that does not mean everything is pleasant and smooth and easy. Lamentations is a gift to us to open up our hearts to the idea that we need hope precisely because things feel hopeless. We we need hope because things actually feel really, really dark. And when we talk about hope, we're talking about light that shines into a dark world. But but biblically, hope is rooted in a person. It's not even just an experience or or some sort of promise of something down the road that you're going to have. It's rooted in a person. So Colossians 1.27 says that hope is in Christ himself. He is the hope of glory. So when we talk about hope, we're not talking about something that's, that's fragile and weak or is dependent on people getting their act together, depending on you getting your act together. It's rooted in what Christ has done for us who he is, what he's already accomplished. So we tie our past and our present and our future to what he's already done for us. And those categories are not linear. They all kind of blur together. But, but it's helpful just to name that there's a sense we have of hope that we have to apply to where we've been stuck in the past so that we can move forward. So, so, so what I mean by that is I know where you sit presently Your past very much is shaping you, and your future is shaping you. And it's like a Venn diagram with a ton of overlap. You couldn't quite chart which is one. Is it present or past or future? Am I regretting, so I'm worried about how that's going to affect my future relationship? I think they all get really blurry, but if we can just stop and say, for the places where you felt stuck, because maybe you resist being in community because of your past. Maybe you resist being honest because of your past. 
Maybe you're saying like there's things about me that if somebody found out they would surely reject me. So I don't want anybody to know what those are. There's ways you're living now because you feel stuck because of what's happened in your past. And Lamentations is a guide for us about how to deal with these things. It's poetry, not like linear thoughts. So even as we read, we read a long section because I wanted you just to kind of feel the the weaving in and out of a hopefulness and a sadness, an intensity and a fear, a a longing for what's good and an honesty about what feels like gravel inside of my mouth. So real quick, Lamentations is written in the 6th century B.C., It's a prophet that's writing poems that are reflecting the lament and the sadness of where God's people are at. And where they are is in exile, which is a fancy word for they've been removed from their hometown, their home country. A warring nation has come and dominated them, which means now, think about that, death, rape, pillaging, slavery. So exile is jagged. Exile is messy. Exile is bloody and muddy and dirty. And they leave their hometown and they're now in a foreign land where they are slaves. Now historically this happens all the time, right? We see lots of movements as empires rise and fall. But for God's people, exile had a special kind of meaning because God promised them that he was going to renew what had happened in the Garden of Eden. And part of that was to give them a land, to to kind of rework what he had promised when he first created way back in Genesis. And so his love wasn't tied to the land, but the way they experienced their walk with God, his faithfulness was very much tied to them being in this space called the promised land. And one of the things that God did to love his people was to say, hey, if your hearts drift, and not like you made one mistake, you kicked out, but if your hearts drift for like centuries, like, like for a millennium, It would be really unloving just to make you think things are fine, so I'll take you out of the land. I'll send wars and plagues. I'll send somebody to discipline you, to wake you up, because sometimes pain is the only way that we actually hear. You've experienced that. You know where you've pursued things that are unhealthy, whether they're, they're simple things like physical health or they're spiritual and emotional and relational. And it wasn't until it got bad, it wasn't until you couldn't handle it anymore that you decided to stop. So we normally wait until we, we've had a heart attack before we start to deal with our cholesterol. There's just something about us that, that thinks we got it, we're kind of fine. And that doesn't stop spiritually. We, we tend to just stay in places where we try to play both sides, God and the rest of the world. So what you see throughout the Bible is a story of God's people unfaithful just from the jump. From the very beginning, they struggle to believe his promises. And he makes a promise to redeem them. And we're in Genesis right now uh, in our Bible reading plan. And you've already seen things like like God's amazing deliverance with Noah. And then he gets hammered and is laying naked somewhere. And whatever's going on there, it's a pretty big deal. There's some massive judgment around that. We, We see Abraham, who's the father of Abraham. Our many, many sons come from Abraham. He's the father of our faith who sex traffics his wife which is a bad deal. Put yourself in her shoes. Put yourself in that space and go, what is going on that this guy who has the promises of God goes to such overt rebellion? And before you turn your nose up, just think about your own life where there's been places where you heard God's voice, you knew what he wanted, and you just flat out said, no. We'll experience throughout the rest of the Old Testament and into the New this narrative of a faithful God dealing with unfaithful people. That that is the story of, of the Bible. The prophets warn about it. The, the psalmists sing about it. There's all kinds of promises of God's love and care for his people. But you see over and over and over again, 
God's people rebel and turn. So there's a ton of regret and shame and loss. And this is not like ideological shame. This is stuff that happens in their bodies, in their economies, in in their families. This is visceral experiences where they have walked in sadness for a long, long time. Again, what it would take for God to finally put them into exile means for centuries they've been in rebellion. So all the sin, all the stuff, right? even those hot spots of Noah and Abraham, you just play that out at the common level, at the micro level in the community, affecting the macro experience of God's people, there's just sin all over the place. There's some moments of repentance for sure, but then they often return back into it. So you have now the pain and loss and longing of centuries of rebellion. Where do you take shame like that? What what do you do with that kind of regret and loss? Because you can't pay it back. You can't do better and try harder. It's so deep. It's been going on so long. God's people find themselves in this space of desperation that it's only like songs and poems that that are crying out to God that could even come close to articulating what, what they feel. And as you hear what they feel, I want you just to kind of put yourself in that spot. I don't think the word shame is actually in the book of Lamentations, at least not the English search of the word. There could be a Hebrew word. Again, got a D in Hebrew. But but the the word is not there, but the experience is all over the place. Let me just kind of walk through chapters 1 and 2 real fast. He opens up in chapter 1, verse 1, and he says, How lonely sits this city on a hill. Right, the, the experience of shame is loneliness. He, he describes it like a widow where there's been death of love. He says it's like a slave experience. In verse 2, he says it's this bitter weeping that goes all night long. My, my whole cheeks are covered with tears. He describes shame as a place where there's no comfort, where, where friends have turned against me. He, he describes it in verse 3 as a place where there is no resting. In verse 4, it's mourning and it's desolate and it's groaning and it's suffering bitterly. He's describing the experience of loss and regret and guilt and shame. He says it's like a deer in verse 6. It has no place to actually eat. It's like being gloated over, right? You made a mistake and now you're being mocked at your downfall in in verse 7. He describes it as feeling filthy in verse 8 of being exposed and feeling naked, he says. He describes it as this sense of an abiding uncleanliness, a a place where there is no comfort, where where there's groaning. In verse 13, he says it's like fire that's inside, like it, it burns inside my body. The shame and the regret and the loss and the guilt is so intense. It's like I'm stunned, he says at the end of verse 13. And he says, my, my transgressions, they're bound up. This is verse 14. They're, they're like they're woven into the fibers of a yoke that you have placed over my shoulders that are so heavy. So, so the sin has become the very thing that weighs me down. It's something that I can't withstand, he says. I feel crushed like grapes in a wine press. I, I weep. Again, I feel desolate in verse 16. It says, it's like I called out to lovers who used to be near to me and they have abandoned me. It's described as distress that makes my stomach churn in verse 20. Are you kind of getting the sense? It's a sword that comes and pierces my heart. It's groans that make me faint. 
He's describing the experience of loss and shame. He gets into chapter 2 and just says, man, it's like everything is falling apart. I'm weeping. My stomach is going over and over and over and churning. I'm pouring everything out. It's like everything inside of me is on the outside on the ground. That's what shame feels like. It's like this overwhelming darkness in chapter 3. It's like my flesh is wasting away off of me, he says in chapter 3, verse 4. It's like broken bones. It's like tribulation. It's like dwelling in darkness. It's something that I can't escape. And I feel like I cry out to God with these heavy chains on. In verse 8, I feel like he's shutting out my prayers. It's this feeling like I'm so unworthy of love. This is so bad. God's not even listening to me when I cry out to him. He's in this space where actually maybe God is waiting just to devour me. That's what shame feels like. He gets down in the middle of chapter 3, right before our text that we read, that they become a laughing stock. There's a a mockery and there's a a taunting. And they're filled with bitterness. And they've tried to eat wormwood to no avail. So we come into our text in chapter 3, verse 16. It's on page 688. He says, He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished And so has my hope in the Lord. I feel hopeless even when it comes to my relationship with God. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Dang. And, I don't know, was that Tuesday? Was that college? Was that your early marriage? Is that your first job? Is that the way you think about your parents? Is that the way you think about your adult children? Is that where you are right now, this sense we have of feeling overwhelmed in a way that just poetry can do with few words bring us into the feeling and experience of shame. Lamentations was written to God's people both as instruction and as comfort to help you know what to do with your past where you feel overwhelmed. What I want to do is just walk through a portion of this text. Actually, we won't get all the way through it. Chapter uh, 3, verses 34 to 58, just kind of talks about, hey, trusting God when it still feels really tangled up. So that's a summary of that. You got that. That's point number five. You can put that down because we probably won't get to it. But he starts in verse uh, 16 to 20, and I think here's what he calls us to do with shame. He calls us simply to be honest about how bad it is. Lamentations gives you permission to be honest about the depths of your brokenness and sin of what's happened in the past, both things that happened to you and things in response that you did in that space that you feel overwhelmed with your past, this passage gives us permission simply to be honest. That's point number one. So let's look again in verse 16. He just is talking with an honesty and, and again like a, this visceral bodily experience saying, he, he has made my teeth to grind on gravel. Now, again, it might be like literally as a slave in exile who's been roughed up by warring armies. But when he talks about my soul being bereft of peace, and I've even forgotten what happiness is. My endurance has perished, and so has my hope. He's saying this is really, really, really bad. And in verse 19, he calls us to remember. And he's actually asking God to remember, but he's telling us to remember as well. And he says a couple of things that I think are helpful to kind of slow down with. He says, remember my affliction. 
Remember what's happened to me. Remember the places where I felt pain. Remember what's, what's come my way that wasn't fair. It wasn't right. I didn't ask for it and, it, and it hurt me. There's a kind of shame we feel from our past in places where we didn't bring it on ourselves. We were victims. But it still haunts you. So he says, I remember my affliction. And he says, and my wanderings. Uh, it can be translated like my, my homelessness, my, my no place to lay my headness, the place where I was displaced and I was traveling and distant and running away. My, my afflictions that happened to me and the places where I ran away from God, my, my wanderings have also caused pain and sin and brokenness. Things that were done to me and things that I did. And he describes it as wormwood and gall, which is, is a poetic way to say just bitterness. Places where as I processed my past, it just was so overwhelmed, I turned inward and got really, really bitter. The lights went dim and dark in that bitterness because of what's happened to me and what I've done, how I interpreted that with bitterness. And he says in verse 20, my soul continually remembers it. I'm ruminating and thinking about, I get stuck when I'm driving in the car, I hear songs, I drive by places, I look at photographs, I scroll through Instagram, I think about what's happened this last year, and I get stuck. I can't shake what I've done and what's been done to me. In this space, then, he's simply starting by saying, you deal with shame by being honest. Just going, dude, this was bad. What happened to me was bad. What I did was bad. And what's crazy is it is this kind of mixture, right? It's both afflictions and wanderings. It's not clean cut. Those categories are not in little buckets that you carry around in your life. They very much blur together. Normally what happens is the way we deal with the pain of what's happened to us is in really non-resourceful, dangerous ways. So we'll soothe the pain of being harmed sexually through pornography and sex. We'll deal with the divorce with alcohol that actually then just makes things way worse. We tend to experience some pain and then compound it. So we really carry in our bodies these kind of compound fractures of the soul, where it's stuff that's happened to us and stuff that we, that we have done. But, but either way, the, the starting place is the same. It's simply be honest. That's what we see from 16 to 20. And then he's going to say, not just be honest about what you've done, but remember what, what God has done. So he says in verse 20, my soul continually remembers what's happened. And it's bowed down, it's broken, it's humbling, it's got me on my knees. And then he says in verse 21, but this I call to mind. I'm remembering what I've done, step one. Don't stay there. Remember what God has done. But I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. In the middle of all that sadness and shame, all right, there's something that's giving them hope. What is it? Verse 22, remember the steadfast love of the Lord, that it never ceases, that his mercies, they never come to an end. They are new every morning, and great is your faithfulness. God, your faithfulness is great. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. All right, just hear the difference between verse 16 of grinding gravel in my teeth and, and this sweet water to the soul. The Bible lets you both be honest about your brokenness and hopeful because it's not based on what you've done. Do you get that? The hope is rooted in the steadfast love of the Lord. Biblical hope, Christian hope, the hope for our church is not in pastors 
and staffs and small group capacities and people coming and people leaving. It's not anything that we would do. It's in the love of God and what he's done for us. The steadfast love of the Lord, he says it never ceases. It's enough for our past. It's enough for our present. And it's enough for our future. And he says his mercies, and it's plural. There's a lot of them. There's as many different mercies as there are experiences of your pain and loss. His mercies, they never dry up. This is an infinite God. The all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God is a God of love and extends that omni-love to you. It's a steadfast love, right, that we sang we could build our life on. These mercies never come to an end. And here's the deal. It's so amazing as we deal with our past and you're ruminating, you're thinking about your past, you wake up overwhelmed. He says in verse 23, these mercies are new every morning. Because of the stable love of God and what he's done, because of who he is and what he's like, these mercies are new every single morning. And he says, oh, this faithfulness of God, it is great. It's greater than our unfaithfulness is the way the Bible would talk. All these stories, all these experiences, all the jagged edges of the Old and New Testament, all the people that are supposed to be following God with their whole heart that look a whole lot like us, all those stories are there to show God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people. And you're meant to say, man, if God could be faithful to Noah and to Abraham and to Abraham's wife and Abraham's wife's handmaiden Hagar that she abuses, where the cycle of abuse just kind of keeps rolling out and keeps spinning, if God could be faithful there, then maybe he could cover over my brokenness as well. There's an honesty that the Bible gives us, and that's rooted not just in dwelling on it. Honesty itself doesn't heal you. Honesty, though, gets you ready to receive the depth of love that you actually need. So you start by being honest, and then you remember what God's love is. That's the place where hope is Found Again, let me just say it again. It's not on what we've done or what we'll do. It's not on a certain leadership style or perspective. It's not on any one person or group of people. It is on what God has done. And this love is hesed. I do know that Hebrew word. It's God's faithful covenant-keeping love. Uh, it's, it's the love of God that's described in a children's Bible like this. It's this Never ending, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. What do you do with your shame? You look and remember the steadfast of the Lord. That's where our hope comes from. It's the hope that Abraham needed. It's the love that he was shown in his brokenness. It's the love that Noah got in the middle of his jagged edges and brokenness. It's the love that we read about in the Psalms that are sung about. It's the love that the prophets warn us when we reject it and promise us it's faithful when we need it. It's the love that's described in the book of Song of Solomon that Ephesians 5 would teach us is a demonstration of God's like romantic, intimate love for his people. It's the kind of love we read about in Hosea where, where we have been unfaithful. We have prostituted ourselves with the world and he still is pursuing and faithful. It's the kind of love that John 3.16 talks about. It's the kind of love that sent God into the world to take on sinful flesh so that he could actually redeem his people. It's the kind of love that Ephesians 3 talks about that is deeper and wider and longer and higher than you could ever even imagine. And the prayer in that passage is that God would strengthen our inner woman and inner man so we had more capacity to know just how big this love actually was. It's the kind of love we read about in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from. 
It's the kind of love that actually sets the table, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the very end of the whole story in Revelation, where we will gather around and say, oh, it is your steadfast love. It is your hesed. It's your covenant-keeping, faithful love that gets us to this place. I can be honest about my past, and I can remember what he's done for me, which then leads me to repentance, which is what verse 25 and 30 are about. Let me just read them fast. He says, it's the Lord is good to those who wait for him. So, so we're not rushing past our brokenness. We're not just saying, hey, I'm sorry, I'm moving on. We're, we're waiting. We're, we're sitting in it. And again, because our shame is being lifted, we're not sitting and doing penance. We're sitting, though, at the depths of our brokenness. Right? We don't rush past repentance. Because actually, the ways you've dealt with your past that have been too thin, they don't have enough stamina now to get you through where you are today. So sitting and waiting and going, no, it actually did happen. I actually did long for that. I actually did pursue that. I actually did say that. I actually did do that. I actually did those things that now I feel shame about. Those things that happened to me actually happened. God is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man that he bear that yoke, that yoke that's been tangled up with our afflictions and iniquities, that we would just sit there and we would bear that. That's actually good for us not to do penance, but so that we can know the depth of our brokenness so the love of God is that much more beautiful. Let him sit alone in silence. Just stop, be quiet, slow your heart, sit there with the Lord, see what he's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes it. Let him be filled with insults. Pay the consequences. Deal with the ramifications. And sit in those spaces that because of what God has done, we don't have to rush past repentance, which is the third thing. We're honest about what we've done. We remember what God has done. We sit in that just for a moment because the level to which we sit in the level of our brokenness is how much more the beauty of God's grace is to us. This is that cross chart we talked about several months ago where the depth of God's brokenness or depth of our brokenness that we experience and, and the more we understand God's love and faithfulness is how big his grace and mercy looks for us. Some of you have too thin and too small of an understanding of God's love. It only works when you're good. It only works when you give. It only works when you're keeping your act together. It only works if you stay sober. That's some of your view of love. And it's, it's too small to hold on to the shame that you feel. The Bible is doing, what Lamentations is doing is unraveling for us, and giving us permission to go, oh man, it's not just bad. It's been bad for like a long time. Friends, I'm 45. There's stuff I've dealt with for 40 years that, that I'm still dealing with. There's places that I have actions and reactions to my own brokenness and the brokenness of others that are so compelling, they're reflexive to my soul sometimes. And if I had a thin little love of it's only good if I'm good, it's only good if I get better, I'm in deep, deep trouble. And regardless of my experience, the way the Bible talks, it's the steadfast love of the Lord that was shown to us on the cross of Jesus where he absorbed the penalty for our sin. That's the place where we go and we lay our shame. So we're honest. We remember God's love. We sit in repentance. And then he closes down in verse 31 to 33, just calling us to accept this love, to actually let it be applied, right? These phrases of, I know God's forgiven me. I just won't forgive myself. Listen to verse 31. He says, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he has caused grief, there's consequences for your sin. He, he woke you up with the pain of it. He will have compassion 
according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Not because there's some sort of ritual, not because there's some sort of equation. According to the limitless, omni-love of God, because of that there is compassion. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. And this is a tricky phrase here. He doesn't afflict from his heart. It means he doesn't afflict willingly. It's what Ezekiel says in chapter 33, verse 11, where he says, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Now, there is death to the wicked, to those who reject God's covenant faithful love and say, no, I'm going to save myself. I won't trust you. I won't turn to you. They do have to pay the weight of their own sin. The Bible would call that the wrath of God expressed to those who, who reject him, not who are inconsistent and broken in sin, but those who say, no, I won't follow you. So let's just be clear for a moment. This passage is speaking to God's people which may or may not be you. God's people are those who trust him, who look to him, who say, my only hope is in you. Even if I'm acting inconsistent, my longing and my expectation and my desire is to put all of my hope in you, to turn to God and let him cover your sin and brokenness through the sacrificial death of his son. That's what makes you God's people. But the other people in the room who are yet to do that or people who are are listening or watching who haven't yet done that, hear this as an invitation. This steadfast love of God is enough for you. The way the Bible talks is that nobody is too far gone. You're not too far gone. You're not just left to come and be nice and play church and get better and try harder and make 2022 better than 2021. That's not the end game God has for you. He actually died in your place, absorbing all the wrath for all the shame and all the brokenness, both of your past and where you currently are and what you'll do in the future so that you can actually experience his love. And that lets you be honest. It gives you something to remember and hold on to. It makes repentance and honesty a safe place for you because nothing that you sit in and remember is threatening your love because you've already said, I was dead in my transgressions and sins. I was an enemy of God and unworthy of his love. My only hope was that God himself would die in my place. That's it. So if you're struggling, if you're inconsistent, if your pain is spilling over on those around you, if shame is making you do things that are adding more and more shame to your life, God's grace is enough. It's according to the abundance. Remember, like it's new every morning, there's lots of mercies that never ceases. You can't outrun it, is the way the Bible talks. And remember the context. These are people that are in exile, 600 BC. You're talking about slavery and torture and pain and death and murder. They've been pillaged and plundered, and they're saying, oh, oh man, this is my only hope. Whatever they've done, whether you've done more than that or not, you could find hope because God has been gracious to them, and he will be gracious to you if you turn and trust him. And this abundance love of Christ, Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. To be a hopeful church is to continually remember what God has done for us. It will be a more honest people when that happens, which means when people are going like, does God even care? Is there any hope for me? We're not saying, oh, if you get your act together, if you come and follow all the rules, if you come and get in all the right channels, if you come and participate really well, we're saying, oh yeah, there's hope for you because Christ died in a way that covered over all of your brokenness. That is a hope worth sharing. It's a hope worth you who already know Jesus to apply to your own heart this morning and remember your past, hold on to it with honesty, but also hold on to the omni-abundant 
life-giving, never-ceasing, already established, solid, stable love of Christ for you. What these people longed for, we now know fully in Jesus. He is the hope of glory. He, He is where our hope is found. And that makes it possible for us to move forward, to be honest, to make amends, to sit in spaces where we can go, man, that really was that bad. And the more I do that, the more I can receive his love and his freedom. So part of the reason why we take communion every single Sunday is to rehearse the fact that we really were that bad. You you are physically saying with your body when you come forward to communion, I was dead in my sins. I did tons of things that were shameful. I'm still battling the effects of my shame. And Christ died in my place to take all of that for me. And it's his broken body and shed blood, which is my only hope. That's where we sit as a people. We have to grow into that. We have to live into that. We have to make, remind each other. We have to make the gospel plausible in our relationships. But that is the starting place for us as a people. And Lamentations gives us a gift of that honesty, of, of being open to the love of God, sitting in our need for God, and then just simply accepting it. And here's the deal. You know this. It's not a one-and-done deal. It's a cycle. Tomorrow morning you'll wake up and have to do all of it all over again because the complication and jagged edges of our brokenness is that complicated and jagged, which is why we do communion every single week. So you're never too far gone to remember what Christ has done. And if you don't know Jesus yet, if you haven't trusted him, what we'll be doing as a community is saying, this is where our hope is at. If that's not where you are, I would invite you to stay in your seat. You can just pray. There's on the back of your bulletin, there's some prayers that will kind of give you some ideas of what it could sound like for you to pray to God and trust that that will be helpful for you to kind of sit in that space. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, just sit and pray. The way we do communion is, is a, not chaotic, but it's not organized in such a way that you just kind of come whenever you're ready. So we'll come down the middle aisles. There'll be somebody who has a basket full of bread, and they'll say, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. And when they say that to you, remember, that's what took away your shame. And then they'll say, this is the blood of Jesus shed for your life. And when you dip that in the cup, remember, that's what took away your shame. We'll go back out these, these side aisles. Over here is a gluten-free station. There's also some self-serve little communion cups. Because of COVID, if that's more comfortable for you, you're welcome to come and grab one of those. Just come out this outside aisle from that space. Let me pray for us. We'll take communion and in a special way ask God to speak to your shame. So Jesus, thank you for what you've done. Thanks for the ways that you've done it. And thanks for giving us examples of how to process our shame and our pain. Would you come now and fill the room with a, re- a reminder of your steadfast love the abundance, the never-ceasing, the always there, never giving up, never breaking, always and forever love of Christ. Would you give us joy based on that hope, even while we're sober-minded about the pain? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.